From Lawson Media, this is Building a Unicorn, the show exploring what it takes to build a big, meaningful business with global impact. I'm Christopher Lawson. When you think about the individuals who really shaped humanity over the past few centuries, your mind probably wanders to people like Albert Einstein, Picasso, Henry Ford, Bill Gates, or Steve Jobs. These are the people who dared to dream about the future, to create masterpieces of art, or to invent new technologies. And most would consider them to be the kinds of people you only experience once or twice in a lifetime. But there are 7.5 billion people on Earth, many of whom could change the world, yet may never have the opportunity to reach their full potential because of their circumstances. We all know that success is somewhat determined by where you live, access to education, and financial status. So what if you could actually quantify the signs that define skill and success? Daniel Gross is the founder of Pioneer, an app which is trying to gamify the idea generation process. And Daniel has a goal of identifying those who could become the next great innovators of our time, and then investing in those people to allow them to experiment and create and come up with groundbreaking concepts. We're trying to kind of settle an Ivy League campus, if you will, of the next great set of innovators, musicians, artists, and company entrepreneurs as well, in an effort to really kind of democratize access to opportunity, to give people uh, who have tremendous potential and productivity uh, the tools that they need in order to become successful in whatever they do, be it the next Albert Einstein, Marie Curie, or, or Elon Musk. To date, we've actually uh, funded people around the world, predominantly kind of earlier on in life, working on really interesting research, everything from, you know, two 23-year-olds in India building uh, a better version of Mobileye, to people doing fundamental research in biology and physics in Africa, to an 18-year-old working on curing sepsis, which is the leading cause of death in U.S. hospitals, to a a 16-year-old building a a better variant of GitHub. Um, So it kind of spans the chasm across industries, across disciplines. And what we're generally looking for is people that have tremendous potential to be very productive in whatever domain that they're working on. You can kind of imagine kind of young Einstein, uh, you know, thinking of of really deep ideas no one thought before, but he's stuck being a patent clerk in Bern. And what we want to do is we want to get all of these people unstuck. We want to help them kind of pursue their kind of weird and interesting dreams because our belief is that with a little bit of software and some smart kind of, you know, machine learning, we can almost create, almost generate 10 times more of these extraordinarily productive people that go on to shape our planet. Pioneer is kind of a productivity competition. People around the world sign up with their ideas and then earn points for being more productive. The more you do in a given month, the more points you receive. You know, if it's research, we'll fund the research. If they're working on journalism, we'll, we'll fund whatever project that is. We actually just funded, I believe, a, a 23-year-old in Malaysia to write interesting stories of how entrepreneurs got started, quite related, actually, to the nature of this podcast. Um, she started writing for the largest publication in Malaysia when she was 15 years old. Um, and so you're kind of getting the sense that all of these people are kind of young upstarts in, in whatever domain they are. And, and so they end up winning uh, these tournaments because they just make a lot of progress on whatever they do. And uh, that enables us to kind of figure out where to direct resources and attention. 
Daniel himself comes from Jerusalem, a city known for its deep religious roots and one which has experienced generations of conflict. But as a kid growing up in a divided city, Daniel says he really didn't know life any other way. What's interesting about that is, until the internet, I I actually think perceptually, everyone's life growing up was somewhat similar in the sense that you don't know much else as as a teenager or as a kid. And so life for me was growing up was kind of, I think, similar to life growing up in the UK. The day-to-day realities were actually very different. There's obviously a lot of terror and uh, a lot uh, a, a deep kind of cultural mishmash going on. But I assumed for a very long time that that was just the way everyone else was in the world. And I still remember when I came out to California being in a real glow over the fact that Things are just safe here. You worry about petty crime. You don't worry about terror, which was very different from the environment I grew up in. But you're not even thinking about that at the time. And the big change, of course, that's happened recently is the Internet. Uh, So suddenly you're exposed to what everyone's life is in different places around the world. And, uh, you know, that really starts to shape your thinking. So for me, you know, I I think I I led actually a... Uh, what seemed to me like a pretty normal life, the the big thing that changed me is I got into software engineering pretty early on in life. What inspired that? I can't claim um, anything particularly unique. My dad taught computer science. I will say I didn't really learn much from him. Um, And I got into coding for a very weird reason. I got into coding because I was playing a computer game and I wanted to mod it. And I didn't really care much about learning to code or algorithms at the time. I just wanted to have a more fun virtual world to play in. Which game? I believe it was Duke Nukem. The early versions of uh, the early computer games. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It was very much, you know, pixel art. And I I just wanted to, you know, experiment with it. And suddenly I found myself learning how computers store memory values so that I could kind of freeze, you know, uh, certain memory values, like how much health I had. And then, you know, managed to beat that final boss I wasn't able to do before. And, you know, lo, lo and behold, I, I kind of accidentally learned to code. And then and then immediately afterwards, once I realized the knowledge I'd acquired, uh, you know, I, I uh, it, it was a kind of a gateway drug moment for me. I, I really started to get uh, into it in depth and started building apps and websites and selling that to other people. And what, what really excited me about software engineering as opposed to other uh, disciplines like chemistry or physics is you could kind of do whatever you want. No one is going to tell you what you can or can't do. You know, if you try to get into chemistry, well, ordering you got to order certain things uh, online or at a pharmaceutical store and you can't get, you know, certain chemicals because you don't want to blow up the house. Whereas you could do whatever you want as a software engineer. There are really no limits. Um, and that kind of really blew my mind for a while. And so, you know, once I got immersed in that, I, I never really looked back. Did you have any other hobbies or was like a lot of your time spent just coding and creating things in a digital space? I was pretty much focused on that. I mean, I certainly was not the popular kid in high school or elementary school. Uh, I didn't have too many hobbies, but I, I found that my love was building stuff in this in this kind of virtual world and then showing it to people in the real world. Uh, to this very day, I mean, I get a real kick out of seeing other people enjoy something that I've made. And, you know, I think it's to a kind of slightly different degree what drives, say, a lot of chefs or musicians. Um, I, I really enjoy that with software engineering. For me, the best moments are, 
you know, if I'm sitting on an airplane and I turn to my left and I watch someone use a, a feature that my startup made, that to me is bliss. And so that's what I tried to spend my uh, early life doing. And uh, it, was, it was a real outlet in that sense because I felt like I didn't quite fit in to the rest of the world around me other than that kind of one interesting sidekick I, I, I created for myself. Now, for many people who live in Israel, the path is pretty clear. When you finish school, you must complete two years of military service. However, it was around this time in life that Daniel was encouraged to apply to Y Combinator. These days, YC is the most influential startup accelerator in the world. However, back then, in 2009, YC was just a couple of years old and still relatively small. And that decision to apply to YC as an 18-year-old kid from Jerusalem changed his life. I was pretty much following the the regular track uh, every Israeli gets put on. I, I was getting ready to serve in the Israeli army. And the, the interesting thing is I, when I applied to YC, I didn't really know what I was doing. I remember filling out, very vividly filling out the application on a Windows laptop tethered to, you know, my old Nokia phone, trying to get, uh, at the time, I don't, I don't know if it was WAP or, or 2G reception. And I didn't really realize that when I was going to hit submit on that application, my life was going to drastically change. And that's, I think, a secret that a lot of people don't appreciate, which is these large life decisions, these kind of momentous shifts in the narrative, in the story that is your life, I think happen from really, these really small moments. And so I didn't have any grand plan or grand ambitions. I, I'm not one of those people that have a, a decade-long plan for my life. I just saw opportunity, and it seemed very small and humble at the time. You know, I remember when I, when I even after I got in, I really thought my startup would fail. And, you know, YC is a three-month program, and I envisioned I'd just come back after those three months. But I saw that opportunity, and as small and, and it's silly as it seems at the time, I seized on it. And I think that's the real trick, I think, to leading a fulfilling life is not necessarily having a, a global arc or narrative that you follow. You know, I think one of the worst things adults do is they ask kids, have you figured out what you want to do in life? Um, whereas we all know now as adults, you no one really knows what they want to do in life. I think the right strategy is is kind of just opportunism. That's what happened to me. And I, you know, I didn't realize it at the time. I, I clicked a few buttons on my computer and suddenly a decade later, you know, I'm here leading a very different lifestyle in Silicon Valley. What idea did you apply to YC with? I applied to YC with uh, an idea that was very different, actually, from what I presented at the end of the program on this day called Demo Day, where you kind of present your idea to the best investors in the world. I applied with a worse version of Pinterest, I would say, is is the best way to think about it. Like, idea was directionally right. It was kind of a little bit of like a, the wire cutter meets Pinterest-style catalog of products, um, but it was, it was terrible. And in the middle of my YC interview, Paul Graham basically said, hey, you seem great. Your idea is terrible. How about you come here and work on something else? And I thought about it for a good 45 seconds. It seemed like eternity. In the back of my mind, I was thinking, sure. I mean, I like kind of like my idea, but I, the, the opportunity you know, that I'm given, I think, is larger. And that really speaks to what I'd like to kind of operationalize and scale up at Pioneer is finding people they may not have figured out what their, you know, great big company will be. You know, they may not have figured out, you know, the, their Dropbox or their Airbnb or their Stripe. But if you actually look at the stories of a lot of those founders, they actually had a company before or a set of companies before. Or if you even if you look at researchers, it takes them a while to triangulate on the exact domain where they do their great work in. Uh, and so we're really looking to kind of capture people 
uh, even prior to their great work and almost push them faster to that direction. Get them painting the Mona Lisa five years earlier. Get Einstein thinking about relativity a decade earlier. And more importantly, I think for every Einstein, you probably have five to ten more who don't end up talking to Max Planck, who don't end up creating that that connection or those set of circumstances or that luck that ends up creating their kind of great work. And that's what we're trying to do. So it's very much colored by my personal story, kind of noticing how much luck and happenstance was involved, as well as by others. And we're, we're kind of trying to build software that removes that from the equation, removes luck from the genius equation. Back in 2009, 2010... Daniel was the youngest founder that YC had ever accepted, and he says that going across to Silicon Valley and through the YC process actually taught him a lot about what it takes to build something big. To me, there's been, and this is a very personal anecdote, you know, I think everyone's mileage will vary, but to me, there's been no vehicle that's been greater for personal growth than running a company. Because running a company is hard because reality stares you in the face. And it stares you in the face in the sense that you need to make something people want and importantly, something people pay for. And people vote with their wallets. And if you don't manage to make something good, they don't vote for you. And and that hurts. Uh, and it forces you to really introspect a lot about kind of yourself, a lot about your product, challenge yourself constantly, realize that a lot of your intuitions, some of them are right and a lot of them are wrong. You know, one of the most common things that startup, early stage startup founders, common mistakes they make is they spend way too much time building their thing and not enough time talking to users because it's much more fun, uh, especially if you're a kind of a little bit of an introverted software engineer. It's much more fun uh, to build and kind of talk to a computer as opposed to like, you know, go out and talk to 50 or 100 people. But of course, that's what's necessary for success. And startups were kind of this treadmill that forced me to do those uncomfortable things in order to make something that people really wanted. And if you really had to encapsulate it in in one thing, it would be probably that tactical feedback would be, you know, talking to users. What I find more interesting about YC are not really the tactical things that you learn, but kind of the more, slightly more emotional, psychological effects of it. And the largest one there was just a constant sense of uh, disbelief about just how big whatever I'm building can be. I think that was the by far the largest service of the Silicon Valley culture that I got is, you know, you'd come in, uh, you'd meet uh, a bunch of other people that are in your YC batch, and two realizations at the same time. One is you're realizing you're not at the bottom of the list. Like, there's some people that you're better than, which is incredibly encouraging. And second, more importantly, they're people that are obviously better than you. And you're kind of now encouraged, you know, to kind of step up to the plate and to try to punch, uh, you know, a little bit above your weight. And I see, I think you see this effect not just at places like YC, but, you know, organizations like McKinsey or most notably the Ivy League, Stanford, Harvard, Yale. And it's almost like there's this leaderboard in the campus, a physical one, of kind of where everyone is and everyone's kind of motivated to improve as a result. And you just don't get that effect if you're stuck in the middle of, you know, the United States and Wisconsin or, you know, in the middle of the world in India or, or Tanzania. And I'm trying to put that into software, basically, so that you get this like positive psychological feedback loop that was similar to what I got at YC. 
you almost like absorbed what everyone else was doing and the ambition that was around you to turn you into a better entrepreneur. It's a little bit like the the goalpost just got moved. The goalpost for what good enough just dramatically changed. It used to be good enough to get five users a week, but suddenly you're like, well, that's a losing proposition. Everyone here is growing 20% and compounding that. And so suddenly that, you know, that's the bare minimum you have to do. You know, you used to think that you can maybe get 1,000 users, but suddenly you're surrounded by people that are getting 10,000 users. And so, yeah, it just changes your defaults. As Daniel mentioned a bit earlier, when he entered YC, he didn't really have an idea. Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, had accepted him into the program based on who he was, not how great his idea was. So every few weeks, Daniel would keep iterating, dreaming up new companies, hacking together an MVP, and then testing them to see if people were interested. And he actually landed on a concept that was making money and starting to scale. So as he neared the end of YC, him and his co-founder, a friend from Israel, started preparing for this big event called Demo Day. It's the opportunity for all YC startups to get in front of a room filled with some of the biggest investors in the world. Many companies receive significant funding from this event, and Daniel was hard at work preparing his pitch. But two days before Demo Day, it all went wrong. Right up until the end of the program, me and my co-founder, who was a friend of mine from high school from Israel, uh, had a product that was making quite a bit of money off uh, Amazon affiliate revenue, where, you know, if you if you direct customers to Amazon's website, they give you a, a revenue share of what that person purchases. And um, three days before demo day, Amazon decides to, may have, been, have even been two days, they decide to shut us down and turn off both our specific account, but the particular way we were uh, we were making affiliate revenue. And so we had this wonderful graph that was about to crash. On top of that, my co-founder, uh, who predominantly at the, at the time, you know, kind of spoke Hebrew and uh, was, I think, there was a lot kind of going on that was new and weird to him, whereas my, my parents were American, so I kind of grew up at least speaking English. Um, he decides to head back home to Israel. And so I had, you know, with 48 hours to spare, lost my idea and my co-founder. And I remember very vividly going to Paul Graham's house and kind of walking around the block and trying to brainstorm about what to do. And, you know, he said, look, you kind of have, broadly speaking, you have three options. You can kind of not tell everyone that this wonderful revenue graph that you have is about to crash and just hope that you figure that out later on, you can skip demo day, defer the entire concept, or you can come up with a brand new idea, you know, in the next two days. And as he would whisper in my ear right before I went on stage with the goal of not making everyone aware that this idea is two days old. Daniel got up on stage and pitched this concept called Greplin, which was basically a search engine for your personal life. It could look through your social networks or emails to find whatever it was you needed. The idea of kind of the search engine, Greplin or or Q, had been in my mind for a very long time. And I never really had the fortitude or the ambition to go out and build it. Building search engines is hard. You know, this is 2000, at this point, 2010. Search engines are kind of like the, the AI of that time. You know, this is before deep learning got big. 
And uh, there's, there, there was a lot of uncharted kind of frontier technology to figure out, you know, TFIDF, BM25, ranking functions, you know, how to efficiently index content. And I was always hesitant to build it, but I felt like I had nothing to lose at that point. And so I just I, I built a very simple prototype in 48 hours, got up on stage, demoed it very haphazardly. I think people were, were confused by the, by the, you know, 18-year-old's haggard, over-caffeinated child in front of them claiming to have built the next Google. But, you know, with, with, a, lot of, uh, with a lot of coffee and um, at work, kind of made a lot of progress. Ended up finding a new co-founder, a person who became one of my best friends. He was at Google at the time. Raised uh, an angel round from folks like Paul Buchheit, who made Gmail, and Brett Taylor, who's the chief product officer at Salesforce today and previously was the CTO of Facebook. Uh, raised a Series A from Sequoia, a Series B from Sequoia. Built out a team and culminated in an acquisition. And a lot of our technology today actually runs on your phone, power spotlight search and a few other things on your phone, desktop, and and other Apple platforms as well. So all of that really came from this, you know, 48-hour terror where I was finally given the liberty to pursue the idea that had been in my mind for many, many years. Do you think that, like, constrained time frame actually benefited you? Like, it, it forced you to put this into what was like the core functionality that you needed to communicate what you were trying to do. I think that's right. I mean, there's you know those there's these funny videos where they film people standing at the top of um, either bungee jumps, and I think they've also done this with diving boards. And basically, the longer they're up there, the less likely they are to jump. And it's it's really fascinating. It's not a rational process. You see them almost race to the end of the diving board, and then they can't quite do it. And the, the people who manage to jump off are the people who just do it quickly. And I felt like this idea, in many ways, had turned into that diving board moment for me, where it, it had been in my mind for so long and it had grown so much that I needed someone to push me off. Uh, and in many ways, th- those 48 hours pushed me off. It was sink or swim, now or never. Talk to me about um, that process of starting a company, you raised money, you brought in this other uh, co-founder as well. When you're sort of working on that, how did you decide on things like equity split? And then how did like bringing on money sort of change that for you and change the dynamic of the company? I remember vividly um, talking about equity with my co-founder and we very much aimed for it. I think we had a preamble conversation, which was, this is about to be really awkward. Let's aim to end this as quickly as possible and move on. Um, and I, I would very much optimize people to operate in that framework in general. Just get it done. Just just do it. Just have the conversation. Yeah. On three, we're all say a number. Ready? One, two, three. Um, <laughs> I don't think we, we did that exact mechanic, but that's at least the framework you want to be in. Uh, I think people really forget you know, when you're starting a company, you're, you're embarking on a decade-long journey, and it depends on uh, what you expect that other person to be signed up for. And if, if they're signing up for working on something for as long as it takes for it to be successful, then I wouldn't over-optimize it and I'd focus on being more generous than not. Um, if, if, these peop- if people are signing up for kind of a very mercenary tour of duty, you may not want those people in the first place, but then you can afford to optimize more. Bringing on more money is an interesting conundrum. Um, My view of this is that, you know, your idea and your startup is a little bit like like a giant cement truck. And the more money you bring on, the slower the revolutions that the cement truck cylinder makes. And the more firm the cement gets and the harder it is to change. 
And in many ways, having very firm concrete is useful. That's how we build things in our world. It also can kill a company if you raise too much money before you have real product market fit because you're going to slow yourself down. And the issue most people face with this feedback is they rationally understand it, but they cannot interpret it because there's a lot of pride in raising money. And it's a sense of accomplishment for a lot of people. So if the opportunity comes by, if they're good at pitching or if the market's really hot, they will raise too much money. And then, you know, give the same advice to the next generation 10, 20 years later. When you'd sort of like taken on all this money in various uh, various rounds for Greplin, which then became Q, like what challenges did you face as a young founder building a team and like having responsibility for people's money? Did you make any mistakes <laughs> yeah. in that process when you're trying to scale your team? <laughs> uh, yeah, I made a ton of mistakes. I mean, um, like I mentioned, startups are, are a wonderful way to, to learn. They're an amazing educational vehicle. They're a harsh educational vehicle. It's not the most pleasant way to learn. Because when you're a founder, like the main difference between a founder, even in a first or second employee, is you really put your name on the door. And if you're a conscientious person and you put your name on the door, it hurts when you screw up. It really hurts. And, and so when someone tells you your product isn't good, you know, even a bad tweet, it affects you much more than you want it to affect you. And I think one of the reasons you see a lot of founders now of late, you know, they're very much getting into things like mindfulness and, you know, being able to just control what's going on in their in their mind is, is because it's such a harsh kind of Arctic environment uh, in that sense. And so you, you need many, many layers of insulation. And it's kind of funny. I'm going through this all again now with my second company, and I'm now reminded of all of that of all of that good, but pain, you know, it's educational pain. Turns out building out your team at the zero to one phase is actually quite hard. Uh, it takes longer than, than you'd expect. It sometimes will take half a year to get your first three employees in the door or teammates in the door. And then, and then maybe take, a, you know, just a couple of months to get everyone else in the door. The profile of the people that are good enough and excited enough to join a party before it gets popular are rare and small. It's also, I, I believe, hiring in general, I think of as a fractional problem as opposed to an absolute number. So if you're hiring your fourth employee, it's as hard as hiring 25% of your workforce at a later stage. And if you're firing your fourth person, it's the same as you know Tesla letting go of a quarter of their workforce, even though that for them would be, I think, 5,000 people. Right, because you, you were relying on that person to uh, contribute an amount of input into the company, and then you remove them from that, and then all of a sudden everyone else has to balance uh, the workload. That's totally true. Um, and and a cultural the cultural impacts are much larger. There's a lot of inspiration from nature here. Companies are kind of like this very young organism growing in a petri dish and it hasn't really built out any immune system and so you know if you inject someone with bad culture they won't get ejected quickly if you hire someone who has bad culture at apple or who has un-apple culture they will get ejected at some point but a startup won't have that and so you could really distort your image and again it's it's kind of interesting in this world of advice of you know hiring mistakes you make or team building mistakes that you make there's a lot of advice that's repeated generation to generation that, that no one manages to implement the first time. For example, I was told, hire slowly, fire fast. And I got to tell you, my number one piece of advice both to myself the second time around as well as to many of the founders I work with is the same thing. And I don't follow that advice. Uh, you know, I, I, there, were, there were some people on the team that just weren't a good fit and it took me way too long to get rid of them because it's uncomfortable to do. But I think, you know, 
if you're an early stage company, the one practical thing I'm enjoying, I think, doing now the second time around is really focusing on just spending a lot of time with people before you hire them. And if you can't, like you're always going to be in this, the, the, the tough situation will be, well, you got this amazing hire from uh, like Amazon or Google and you got to decide today. I mean, you've spent three hours interviewing them. You got to decide today if you want to hire them. And the brave thing to do is actually say, you know what? If they're not willing to accept some trial period or they're not willing to spend more time with us, we're not going to hire them. Because I think just like with love, you don't really know what you want early on. I mean, maybe you never know what you want, but I think early on you definitely don't know what you want. And coming up after the break, Daniel's company, now called Q, gains the interest of a tech giant. Welcome back to Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. We're speaking with Daniel Gross, the founder of Pioneer, and in a previous life, he ran a startup called Q. As Daniel's company Q developed, the search functionality got more and more complex, to the point where it would essentially become a virtual assistant, making recommendations and reminding you of things you needed to know when you needed to know them. And it was around this time in 2013 that one of the biggest companies in tech came knocking. You know, we were paying uh, Amazon Web Services a hearty amount of money, and uh, we were trying to figure out how to build a business model that would let us support that and kind of slowly turning our product into an enterprise product just so that we could afford to recoup some of our cost. And roughly around that rumination phase, Apple approached us out of the blue and said, hey, what you're working on actually would be great for everyone who has an iPhone and everyone has a Mac. And if you work here, you don't really have to worry about those data center costs anymore because we're the largest company in the world and we have a lot of cash and we just want to build really good products. And that's really all I wanted, still want to do in life is make really good products. And Apple afforded us the opportunity to do that. And so we integrated a lot of our work into Spotlight Search, which you know does a bunch of various cool things like show you what apps you want to open before you even type anything, or when people send you their contact info over email, adds it to your address book. It basically tries to both be that reactive and proactive assistant for you. And a lot of that is is literally the code and team that was uh, Q. Right. And how old were you when this happened, when you were acquired? I was 23. That's a pretty big deal for a 23-year-old uh, to have a company acquired by Apple, how did you feel at the time? Like, were you just in- incredibly excited, or um, were you concerned that you were like having to give up your your baby to this big corporation, or like what was going through your mind? Uh, at the time, I was exhausted. Uh, at the time, I remember thinking, I really hope that what we build becomes enduring, and this doesn't become something where the talent or our team is sprinkled across the company, you know, three months from now. Um, but boy, I could also use a break. And so one one thing we did, me and my co-founder, is uh, I remember I called up this person I was going to work with at Apple, and I said, hey, we need to move our start date a week into the future. Robbie, my co-founder, and I just decided to fly the entire team to Hawaii for the week. And uh, we're just going to do nothing for a week and hang out in Hawaii. And um, I'm super happy we did that. We got a lot of memories, and it allowed us to recharge a little bit. And, you know, I, I think 
2020, the acquisition is a success in the sense that not only kind of the software was implemented, but that the core team, almost to its entirety, I believe other than me, only one other person has left. The core team is still there, and it's grown significantly since. You know, probably grown in order of magnitude. So in that sense, um, uh, in that sense, you know, I think it's a success. And that was my largest worry. I just wanted, we had hired a lot of people to work on that mission of productively organizing people's information. Kind of, you know how Google's all about organizing the world's information? We were going to be all about organizing your information. And I wanted to make sure that those people got the opportunity to continue working on that vision. And they they very much do every single day. When you sort of like transitioned into working for Apple, like what was your role like on a day-to-day basis? My role was, I was a director there and my role was doing more of the same, honestly, uh, as well as um, increasingly doing more to kind of new organizations, helping other organizations with machine learning and uh, and and with search, predominantly actually with, with kind of machine learning, tracking the right metrics, optimizing the right things and so forth. And so I developed, Apple has, a, has this um, basically a set of individuals called DRIs. These are people working on what they call tentpole releases, you know, big, you know, the, the, the five or six big initiatives the company is going to make over the course of a year or two. And I was the DRI of this thing called OS intelligence, which is basically a blanket term for machine learning across all of Apple's products. And, and, and so that was kind of my role was basically trying to orchestrate that concert. Daniel stayed at Apple for almost four years. And in that time, his search technology was implemented across many of the company's products. You probably use it every time you pick up your iPhone. But almost four years in, during 2017, Y Combinator, the same startup accelerator that gave Daniel his start and changed his life, came back and offered him a job as a partner, and he accepted. So he'd now be helping them find more people with the skills to build a successful business. What was it like being on the other side of the fence at YC, where you're now working with the startups coming in as opposed to being a startup yourself? Uh, It was very different. Um, It was very different. You know, company building and investing are psychologically very different disciplines. And one discipline of the company building, you're working on one single thing, you've got the blinders on, that is the only thing you're focused on. And so the con is myopic focus. The upside is you get to really build a team and a kind of a repeated set of interactions around people you really enjoy around you. At YC or as being an investor, actually the YC role in particular is a little bit more like being a professor. You're seeing a rotating crop of students come in, come out. You interact with a lot of different people. And then on the plus side, you get amazing exposure to what people are building around the world. You kind of get to channel surf that. Um, you don't get to build as deep a relationship with every single person, obviously, but you do get much more multifaceted exposure. And so it's just kind of very different in that sense. To me, it was, it, was, uh, it was an amazing experience where kind of the best part about it was similar to the worst, which is uh, you have a tremendous amount of power. Because you, I mean, you you can make these major life decisions for people, and I felt that power more than just any other random person because I had been a benefactor of the gift YC can give, and so you know the best part about the job is uh, accepting people into the program and watching them go. And similarly, the worst part about the job is obviously um, what you do much more frequently, which is saying 
you know, no or not not yet to a lot of people. So many people apply to YC, like it's such a big thing and, you know, thousands and thousands of people are applying for each badge. And I assume that in that mix of people, there is a lot of similar ideas that people want to work on. So how do you then like sort through all those to find the gems in that, the people that can actually turn these ideas into companies that can scale, that can be important? Uh, that is, of course, the uh, infinite dollar question. How do you build a detector for, uh, for exceptional talent? So I guess there's, you know, there's two takes on this whole thing. Um, one take is that market matters more than person. And if you subscribe to that view, it's actually easier because you can afford to kind of be shoddy at assessing people, but really only just invest in great markets and assume that, you know, weak founders, strong market, great company. The other view is that uh, people matter more than markets, uh, in which case you have to get really good at assessing people. And, you know, I'm not I'm not just sure which one should subscribe to. I, I'm kind of the belief, actually, that you need both to be truly successful. But assessing markets is certainly easier than assessing people. On the topic of assessing people, you know, I think it's an error in general. Interviewing people and assessing people is an incredibly under-researched area today. And I hope over time, I, th- I think Pioneer is actually collecting I think more data than most leading labs in the world about this, about what makes for great people. And I hope we can share that back to the world through some type of publication one day. But, and you know, until then, I think the thing YC does is just a lot of pattern matching. You just sit and, and, and it's very much the system one in your brain is just pattern matching. You know, you can't really like, like I think the, and the people at YC that are far better people pickers than me, Sometimes listening to to them talk felt a little bit like Magnus Carlsen talking about how he thinks about the next chess move where they feel it feels like they have this intuitive reaction that they then figure out why they're having. And, you know, I think the only way to get better at that is repeated exposure. I think the other interesting question, which is one we're trying to figure out at Pioneer, is are there ways where uh, you can make software that is good at detecting people? But I think the, the even more exciting question is, can you make software that is good at creating people? Um, because I do think that, um, especially if you're getting people early on in life, you can actually almost radicalize them to becoming great if they have the the, the kind of underlying makings of a great person. And that's, so, so we're kind of trying to do that. And it involves a lot of, you know, interesting science of psychometrics, of kind of gamification. It's a hodgepodge of things. And, hope, you know, hopefully if we crack it, we'll, we'll be able to build, you know, something that is uh, akin to Google's page rank, you know, in terms of its importance for the decades to come. After some time at YC, Daniel started to get an itch, an itch to create something new. So he decided to go out on his own again, and after the break, how that desire led him to create Pioneer. This is Building a Unicorn. I'm Christopher Lawson. After spending some time at Y Combinator as a partner, Daniel decided that he wanted to build something similar to YC, but which would reach not just founders, but inventors, scientists, journalists and artists, earlier in life and then help them get to the point where they could fulfill their purpose in the world. It's funny, like many life decisions, it was kind of circuitous. There wasn't this moment where I realized I wanted to do this. One thing kind of led to the next, but rationalizing it in hindsight, I would say that I really like the idea. I'm very entranced by the idea of trying to 
give kind of a gift similar to YC, but to a much broader populace much earlier on. And 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 Pioneer is really built to fund. It's it, it's much more a Ivy League competitor, I think, than a YC competitor. And we've had pioneers actually graduate from Pioneer into YC. But we also Pioneer funds a lot of people that will never become you know founders of a company but they may end up producing landmark research. And so once I've realized there are all of these kind of weird, interesting things, not just about YC, but about this network of Silicon Valley, and I went to visit a lot of other networks like Stanford and Princeton and Yale, I kind of begun to wonder if it'd be possible to kind of settle an Ivy League campus on the internet. And at some point that idea took over my brain and I just wanted to, I just wanted to kind of go experiment with it. Are there any differences in the way that you've approached building Pioneer to building your first company? Now that you've been there, you've done that, you sold your company, now that you've had that experience and then you've been on the other side of the fence, you know, on the investor side of the fence, is there a different approach that you've taken to building Pioneer now? Uh, there's a lot of things. I mean, I, I made a lot of mistakes in my first company that that I, that I won't repeat and, and that's this is too too long to bear the the attention span of our audience, but I'd say predominantly, you know, I am very much focused on building a culture that mirrors my personality and the personality of the people that join. It's kind of a there's you know there's a flywheel effect there, and just making sure that I'm building an organization where there's real enjoyment every single day in work. You know, I I, I think a lot of that just comes down to really focusing on whether you feel like you are enjoying the colleagues that you work with and and ruthlessly optimizing for that. Uh, and, and that is probably my, my predominant focus. Um, the one thing I, I, I we are debating a little bit is our, we're a very small company now or a mini organization uh, that has changed is um, is how important is remote versus local. Um, you know, when, when I started Greplin or Q, it was very clear that Local was the answer. Is before Bay Area kind of housing cost crisis was went really crazy. Uh, working at Apple, which is an incredibly centralized company, it reinforced in my mind the value of the proximity that you get in the real world. Um, but there are all sorts of interesting things that are happening now. I mean, first of all, living in the Bay Area has become nearly impossible for people. U.S. immigration is challenging. And there's examples of companies that are, you know, entirely remote. Um, like I think Zapier is an interesting example of hundreds of employees all working remotely on a on a, a rapidly growing endeavor. Even WordPress or WordPress, um, of course. What you wonder with all of these companies is, are they successful in spite of being remote, as opposed to because they're remote? Like I, I do wonder for WordPress if it could have been ten times larger had it been all uh, kind of in the same office. But but also, you know, Pioneer in many ways is this kind of global network of of distributed talent around the world, and all these. There's, of course, challenges with be, with being remote, but these are the challenges we're trying to solve with Pioneer. You know, how do you build real camaraderie amongst people you never really met? Uh, how do you build a real sense of presence, uh, almost like being in the same room with people when when you're all you have is a chat room? You know, are there, is there is there software that could really do that? That could really give us a sense that we're we're kind of here together. And so, since we're working on solving those problems anyway, we often wonder whether we should hire remote people as a kind of beta test. We still we're still very much focused on on local, but I would say that that's that's a large large shift from the last company I started. The way Pioneer works is you submit a project or idea to the platform, and then you play a game for 30 days. You get points based on the amount of work you do towards your idea, 
and then those with the most points get given $1,000 cash to help them in the process, along with $6,000 in a cryptocurrency called Stellar. The team then tracks these pioneers and invites them to Silicon Valley, where they can spend time with them in person. They also help them out with access to Google Cloud credits, and through that process are really trying to figure out what different industries actually need. So it wouldn't surprise me if what biologists need is actually three months in a wet lab where they can work. And it wouldn't surprise me if what journalists need is just a laptop and Google Docs um, or maybe a video camera. And so <laughs> our, goal is, um, our goal is to figure out what is the cheapest thing we can give to the lo- broadest number of people because um, we're really trying to hit global scale here. So we can't give everyone a million dollars, but we'd like to give like the cheapest thing to the largest number of people where if you just give them that thing, and by the way, I suspect the main thing we give people is actually the intangible, which is none of the things I described, but the community and the network that kind of sets the tinder uh, underneath them and turns that into a kind of a raging inferno. Pioneer is still a fairly small business. They have only four employees, but they already have thousands of people using the service. And Daniel says they're seeing some interesting trends in the types of ideas people are submitting to the platform. We really see everything. I mean, both in terms of countries and trends. I mean, uh, over half of our players are outside of the United States from like countries like, you know, India, Nigeria, the United Kingdom, Ghana, Tanzania. I mean, it's it's really quite global. And as well, the projects. I mean, there's people working on cryptocurrency, virtual reality, artificial intelligence research, biology research, chemistry, music, a lot of synthetic biology. In terms of trends shifting, uh, or in terms of most popular categories, there's a lot of people working on just SaaS software. There's a lot of people working on synthetic biology. There's Machine learning research is quite popular. Um, I think that's a byproduct of one of the perks we give out, which is um, $100,000 in Google Cloud credits, I think attracts a particular type of person. One interesting thing that I, that I found promising or interesting, not, not promising in other direction, is uh, this has been this shift where I feel like just just by kind of perusing applications, cryptocurrency in our first tournament was kind of more popular than virtual reality and augmented reality, whereas that's switched in the latest tournament. I kind of have wondered if that's kind of something that's changed only in the past few months, just as in terms of what where where is the heartbeat of the youth today? Kind of seems like that. That market has become slightly more alluring, slightly more exciting. And I don't know if it's a byproduct of a potential kind of crypto crash or Ready Player One or, uh, you know, the rise of the of the latest Oculus headset. But uh, Mark Zuckerberg, he believes that, you know, virtual reality and augmented reality will really become popular, he says, 10 years from now. It does feel like we're we're kind of getting ready for something big to happen circa 2025. You talk a lot about, with Pioneer, with wanting to uncover the geniuses or like the Einstein sorts of people that are hidden in societies around the world. Why do you think it is that people perhaps underestimate their potential? What a great, wonderful question. I think the, 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 the slight curse of nature here, that it is a byproduct of being conscientious. That is to say, I think what drives a lot of conscientious people is a sense that they are not good enough where they are and they need to improve. And I think when you have that monologue, you're usually very driven to do better and better and better. But that also can occasionally mean that 
you need to be inspired just about how great and big you can become. It's kind of interesting. Um, the one common trait across all innovators, kind of throughout history, is a connection to another innovator. And what seems to be happening there is that other innovator challenges them to realize just how great they can become. And so they manage to break this vicious kind of conscientiousness loop where you're constantly thinking to yourself, ah, I'm not good enough, I should work harder, work harder, which also kind of throws you into a local maxima where you never reach for the stars. Um, but then you finally get introduced, you know, whether it's Mike Markula for Steve Jobs or, uh, you know, Max Planck for Albert Einstein, you get introduced to some other advisor or mentor that really challenges you to realize just how great and how big you can become. And to me, when I think of what I got out of, say, Paul Graham at Y Combinator, the strategic advice was second, actually, to the sense of, like, this could get really big. You should take it really seriously. And so I, th I, I think that kind of advisors or, or mentors at the right place at the right time enable people to break this, this feedback loop where, you know, they're working really hard because they think they're not good enough. You know, if, if my theory is correct, we'll, we'll stand to drastically change that um, as, we try to, as we try to kind of automatically give everyone basically an advisor or a mentor. Yeah, that's and that's incredibly important, especially for people from developing countries, which maybe there's not that existing ecosystem, uh, startup ecosystem that they can rely on to provide that support and mentorship, etc., and networks to them. I, I think that's right. I mean, I think people are very much defined, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the environment that they're in and what the culture that they're in rewards them with. Uh, and we're trying to figure out if there's a way where we can just inject a little bit of this uh, moonshotty culture to the people in the world that, that need it the most. As someone who grew up in Jerusalem and then moved into the Silicon Valley bubble, what do you think more global entrepreneurs can learn from the innovation that happens in Silicon Valley? I think the largest... Silicon Valley secret uh, is that for whatever you're thinking of doing, you could probably be doing the thing 10 times larger. And I, I don't care about the industry or category, actually. I mean, it could be a company. You could be talking to 10 times more users every single week, to sending 10 times more emails. If you're in politics, you could be thinking 10 times larger about what you should be doing. Uh, if it's in music, you could be getting 10 times exposure. Like, the largest thing Silicon Valley, the, the, the culture here teaches you is that, um, I mean, there's, there's literally an order of magnitude of greatness w waiting for you. Now, it's not necessarily right for everyone to take it. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of businesses that don't grow very quickly and that are amazing. Um, like your favorite restaurant, I'd imagine. That's just not a startup, which is fine. This this idea of 10x may not apply to someone who just needs to puddle around and putter around and do some research and thinking. But that is the big Silicon Valley secret is, I mean, you, you is that you can just do it much bigger, much greater than you're currently thinking. And so that catalyzes, you know, this 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 loop where everyone else now thinks that. And so... Yeah, I, I think cultures and environments are really interesting in that way because they really reward kind of different different behaviors. Uh, you know, Israel, interestingly, has a very porous uh, or, or, or active startup environment, but it's, it's quite different in the sense that it's not... If you look at Israeli startups, they're usually hard science, hard technical problems. They're not 
massively creative endeavors. Waze, very hard routing problem. Mobileye, very hard machine learning problem. And they're not Snapchat. And that is because the culture is is very harsh. The reality is very harsh. It's a very skeptical culture. Very smart, very aggressive, but very skeptical. Uh, whereas here, I think due to a lot of different factors, lack of terror, but also the success of crazy fringe ideas, you have people that are willing to really dream, willing to believe that something like Facebook gets big, which is a really foreign concept if you think about it in 2005 or or Snapchat, or TikTok. And that, that is only a byproduct of the fact that big things have happened here in the past. You're still fairly young, but you've achieved an incredible amount already. When you look at everything that you've achieved, how do you feel? I don't think about it that much. My mind's orientation is very future-oriented. So, like, if you had a pie chart of what my brain thinks about Uh, I think you'd find there's a very small fraction of it thinking in the past in general. Most of my thinking is kind of towards the future. Where am I going to be in the next hour, week, month, year? I mentioned I don't think the next 10 years, but kind of next year. So, yeah, I I don't have a great insight here. I'm just kind of always trying to think of, of, of what's next. But I do think it's important for leaders of companies to learn how to celebrate what they've achieved with their team. It's something that because of my future or orientation, I don't do enough, but I'm, I'm trying to get better at. Uh, you know, if, if you end up having a really good week with the team, you got to remember to celebrate it. My default is very much, all right, well, it's Friday, let's think about Monday, as opposed to maybe we accomplished something really great this week and we should celebrate it. Thanks to Daniel Gross for taking the time to speak with me for this episode. Building a Unicorn is a Lawson Media production. You can find out more about the show or get episode transcripts at our website, buildingaunicorn.com. This episode was hosted and scripted by me, Christopher Lawson, with research by Jasmine Mee Lee. Our theme music is by Nick Buchanan and other music from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Mixing and editing by James Parkinson and our artwork is by Andrew Millist. And if you love this episode, make sure you share it with all your friends or head on over to Facebook or Twitter to search for Build a Unicorn. If you've got any guest suggestions or just have some feedback, send us an email to unicorn at lawson.media. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.